Amen. Do you love Jesus? Nobody loves us like Jesus loves us, so I hope that we love him in return. That's only right. Amen? If someone loves you, cares about you, it's only, it's only right to just love them in return and respond with love. And one of the things God gave us is his love letter, the Bible. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 4, 5. Would you stand with me as I read that? 1 Corinthians from chapter 3, verse 18. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Sorry, I began at 16. Now from 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So in our passage today, Paul continues to address the Corinthians' uh, factious behavior of in, in declaring their allegiance to this teacher or that teacher and their ability to, their great ability to choose who is the best, you know. And in doing so, Paul's getting down to the core uh, of the issue that they have, worldly wisdom and a sense of being better than others is antithetical to the Christian faith. Let me say that again. Worldly wisdom and a sense of being better than others is antithetical to the Christian faith. We must conform our thinking to the word of God and die to our old way of seeing life as a competition for superiority or influence. Again, verses 18 and 19, let no one deceive himself. That's a command. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Don't deceive yourselves. 
It's a command. It's a present imperative command that he's giving us. That means Paul was telling that some people in the church in Corinth that their supposed wisdom was actually self-deception. They thought they were wiser than others, picking, picking whom they, be, they believed to be the best teacher, who they judged to be the best. But that's the wisdom of this age, a passing wisdom, which is foolishness with God. D.A. Carson writes, the world loves power and prestige. God displays himself most tellingly on the cross in sublime and wretched weakness, yet that weakness affects God's utterly breathtaking redemptive plan and thus proves stronger than all the world's strength. The world pants after strong leaders, but leaders in the church must first of all be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world parades its heroes and its gurus. Christians remember that God loves to choose the weak and the lowly and the despised, the nobodies, so that no one may boast before him. The world tries to impress with its rhetoric and sophistication, cherishing form more than content. The apostles of Jesus Christ prize truth above style and quietly refuse to endorse any form that may prove so attractive, even so diversionary, that the centrality of the gospel of the truth is jeopardized. That's the end of the quote. Humility has to be an attribute of elders and of all who want true wisdom that comes from above. We must recognize that we are hopeless sinners without the grace of God and his indwelling Holy Spirit. How many Bible professors babble on about Bible theories and Bible criticism and completely miss the main point of scripture? Jesus is Lord and we are not. That's pretty simple. And therefore we desperately need him. God has delivered to us his inspired word, and yet we often come to it as if it were just the opinions of men. We've seen the mathematical wonder that Pannon found in the scriptures. It stood the test of ages, and it's been confirmed by archaeology. Did you know even in this last year, uh, archaeologists used to say, well, there was never really a palace in Israel until about 800 BC. You know, the Solomon and David stuff is probably just fiction. They just had to revise that because they found architectural palace structures from 1000 BC, which lines up with the time of David and Solomon. There they go again, have to rewrite it all over again. It happens time and time again. You think eventually they would get, get a clue and say, well, let's see if we can find what the Bible's telling us, right? Countless lives have been transformed by the word of God. Maybe that's one of the biggest testimonies of its truth. And yet man often puts his opinion above the God-breathed word. It's the word that was made flesh in Jesus. So when we reject the word and to stay with worldly wisdom, we're actually rejecting Christ. The Old Testament writers had such a reverence for scripture that they wrote songs about it. You've got 150 of them in your Bible. 
To this day, Jews keep it in a special closet and are careful not to touch it with anything well, but, but the handles. They read it with a little reading stick so that they don't touch it. They read through the law and portions of the prophets over the year, and when they come to the end of the year, when they've read it all, they take it and they put it, they have a cover on it, and they dance around the synagogue while everybody tries to kiss it, the covering of the Torah. The word itself declares it is forever fixed in the heavens. Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one little mark in the scriptures to perish. No wonder then that the thoughts of the wise are futile. How we need to humbly conform our thinking to the word rather than to try to interpret the word to fit our thinking. How foolish to think we can manipulate what God has uttered. That was the very first sin, wasn't it? Self-deception, thinking we could change what God had spoken. Let no one deceive himself. God catches the wise in their craftiness. Is the only New Testament quotation from the book of Job. It tells us that our manipulation or rejection of God's word ends up being to our own demise. We think we're getting away with something, but it ends up being to our own detriment. Edward Hall's chronicle tells of Bishop Tonstall's effort to destroy Tyndale's hand-copied translations of the Bible into English. The Catholic Church had kept the Bible in Latin so that the masses of people would have to come to the church to hear the Catholic interpretation of scriptures. The bishop thought if he could just buy all those handwritten translations of the Bible, then he could stop it from getting out to the public. He could keep it out of their hands, of those commoners. So Tyndale, surprisingly, sold all his copies to the bishop. But Tyndall then used the proceeds to go to this new invention by Gutenberg and print many times more Bibles with that money. God catches the wise in their craftiness. True wisdom will never contradict God's word and his ways. The world tells us to do as we wish and use our own wisdom to make it happen. Dream big and try hard and you can make it come to pass. God declares all that to be foolishness. Instead, we must look foolish in the eyes of the world by yielding our lives to the wisdom of God in his word. Our eyes of faith see what is really of value. The worldly wise cannot understand the wisdom of God but the simplest believer can appreciate it. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Paul adds one more proof text to make his point. This time he's quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament, Psalm 94:11. Paul's constant references to scripture show us that even with his great intellect, he knew the wisdom of God had to shape his thinking and guide the advice that he gave to the churches. How much do we rely on the scriptures when we give advice? 
The worldly wise may look like they're accomplishing something, but as we saw in the previous passage, it won't stand when the day brings the fire of testing to it. They are busy busying themselves with things that soon pass away. They're busying themselves with things that just won't last. It's difficult not to care about what people think of you, right? I mean, we all want to be respected. We all want to be accepted. But we should count it in honor if people think we're foolish for giving our lives and our assets to God. Their thoughts of us are as transitory as their deeds. The only opinion that matters is God's. The thoughts of the worldly wise are futile. Verses 21 to 23, so let no one boast in in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Because the wisdom of this world is folly with God, and because his servants merely proclaim his word, why would we boast in men? He already told them to boast in the Lord in chapter 1, verse 31. Now he demands that they quit boasting in men. Paul commands us not to do it. The self-assertiveness of the Corinthians was out of character for Christians. They were acting as if they were their own masters, whereas they really belonged to God. All that is good and lasting is from our gracious God and is our inheritance in Christ. While none of us are anything without him, as adopted sons and daughters of God, all things are ours. Why limit ourselves to one teacher? They are all ours, and all are working toward the same end. The created world is ours, and it is filled with his glory. Life and death are ours, because for us to live is Christ, and to die is gain. While the world runs from death and clings to life at any cost, the believers know their daily lives and the time of their deaths are in our Father's hands. We do not need to stress about today or fear illness or accidents because we know the one who holds these details gave himself for us. Our times are in his hands. You can only truly live when you are not in fear of death. Then you can be and do whatever God calls you to be. The present and the future are ours, for we can be led by the Spirit and the Word to be God's instruments in this world. Paul didn't mention the past because there's nothing we can do about it. Remember, Paul himself said, I forget the things that are behind. I press forward to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. But we certainly can ask God how he wants, us to, wants to work through us now, today, and in the future. We can truly be present as we have no fear when we are in Christ. We can look forward to the future because the hands that hold the future 
have the love scars that redeemed us. How glorious a future is ours in Christ and eternity in his presence. And best of all, we belong to Jesus and he is God's beloved son. Without him, we're nothing, but in him, we have everything. Can we daily live with that mindset that all is ours in Jesus? How would it change our generosity? How would it change our daily attitude? And consider how it could curb our covetousness and our competition with one another. The Corinthians would abandon their factious behavior if they received it. We must ask ourselves if we really believe all things are ours. This is one of those truths of scripture that's hard to get from the head down into the heart. Worldly wisdom says it's better to get than to give, but heavenly wisdom says it's better to give than to receive. You know, Psalm 8411 tells us, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The one, the only one to walk uprightly was Jesus. And by faith in what he did for us, we are in him. And that's the reason Paul could promise that all is ours, for you are Christ and Christ is God's. Paul repeats the concept in Romans 8.32. If God didn't spare his only son, is there any good thing that he would withhold from you? The meek shall inherit the earth. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. The maker of heaven and earth is our groom, which makes him our provider and our protector. Our eyes should be fixed on the creator of all good things. Christ is God's. Now that's not saying that Christ is not one with God, but as Paul clarifies in the letter to the Philippians, Jesus humbled himself and he became one of us and submitted himself to the Father to redeem us. He did it as an example of submission to the will of the Father. He was demonstrating the wisdom that's from above. Do we see living and dying, the present and the future in relationship to God's purposes and plans for his redeemed people? Can we rejoice in both knowing we get to cooperate with the purposes of God in both? And if we really grasp hold of this truth, it'll transform the way we see the present and the future. What optimism the child of God should have in realizing that all is ours. Chapter four, verse one. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful or trustworthy. Don't think of elders as, as anything more than servants of Christ, those who distribute from God's storehouse revelations from God. Paul uses a word for servants here that's only used here in all of the scripture. It's, it, it's literally the word an under rower. In other words, there are those in the belly of a ship who, who row. There's rows of these rowers who work under there. 
And uh, some of us recently saw the movie Ben-Hur, because if you remember the movie, he was, an, he was this kind of servant, an under rower as a slave. It came then to refer to someone who was in a very lowly, hard, difficult service, one who takes orders. And in other words, apostles are just carrying out the orders from their Lord. The word steward was used for a manager of a household. So he uses both words in this passage. And a steward also is a slave. He's the slave that manages the other slaves in the household. So he has authority, but he has authority over himself as well. Their service in this case is relaying the revelation of God. People like to make heroes, favorites, you know, whether it's in sports or in politics or who they tout as the best. But Paul is saying that in the church, the leaders are really just servants, God's assistants. They should not be thought of more highly than others. Everyone who ministers to others does so because God is graciously working through a flawed vessel. We have to remember that and not put people on a pedestal. The main requirement of elders is that they be found faithful or trustworthy to obey their master and faithful to teach God's word accurately. You know, there's so many people enter the role but are removed in a short time because they were not called of God. Out of every person who enters the ministry, a majority will change their career within five to nine years because it's demanding of their time. It calls for greater sacrifice and a higher standard. But the essential need is faithfulness to God and to his word. Faithfulness is what God's looking for in all of his children. God said the servants that he honors with more responsibility are the faithful ones. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's because God has been so faithful to us. And just like we should love him because he loves us, we should be faithful because he is faithful. Kind of sounds like a marriage, right? When you say your vows, you promise to be faithful to one another. And in one sense, it is a marriage. How would you rate your faithfulness to God? Are you obeying all that you know he's asked you to do? Are you attentive to hear his directions and to obey? Are you feeding your soul with his word? Verse three, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul may have been, uh, as his name suggests, and, and as some uh, early Christian documents say, a short man with a big nose and bulging eyes. <laughs> and Greeks would have seen those that eye affliction as a curse from the gods and and would have wanted to stay even away from him lest that curse fall on them as well. He had overseen the death of Christians, but now he stands in grace alone. And for those reasons and perhaps others, some preferred to say that they were followers of the eloquent Apollos, putting Paul down in the process. But Paul didn't really care. 
He doesn't even judge his own standing except to acknowledge that God called him to be an apostle. It's good for us to have this humble mindset. It matters not what people think of us. We should only be concerned about how God sees us. We may think he's pleased, but if he is, it's by grace alone and due to Christ alone. If he were to speak to us and point out all our failures at once, oh God, help us. We would probably be undone, like Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah. He remembers our frame is but dust, and so... does not reveal all our flaws at once and overwhelm us. He remembers our frame. Paul knows that he will stand before the judge as we all will, and only then will the secrets of hearts be revealed. Verse four, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. So Paul in his, had a clear conscience. He couldn't think of any sin or un, unfaithful action, but he says, that doesn't mean I'm not guilty of something. Humans tend to have blind spots regarding our weaknesses and our failures. The Lord's the only one who can judge and deliver an absolutely pure judgment. And knowing this, we should walk humbly with our God, not judging others. Remember that the way you judge others, Jesus said, you will be judged. If you say, bring it on, you don't have this humble awareness that the Apostle Paul had. It's one thing to not be aware of sin. It's another thing to say you have none. Verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The Corinthians thought they could judge which teacher was best, but, but Paul's telling them only God can truly see the motivations of the heart. We can't judge one person better than another. We have to leave that to the Lord. He knows the motives of the heart that we can't see. Someone may be doing something that appears to be wonderful, but from the wrong reasons. And others may be doing the same thing from the right motive. Only God knows. Commendation that matters will come from God. Resist the temptation to judge even yourself. Take others' judgments of you to the Lord and his word and ask him what is true. Our natural reaction when someone brings out a fault is to be defensive, but we should carefully consider criticisms to see if they're addressing one of our blind spots. Again, from D.A. Carson, he writes, with the final day of judgment in view, Paul may have been expected to say, at the time, each one will receive his rebuke from God. But instead, he says, at that time, each one will receive his praise or commendation from God. How wonderful. The king of the universe, the sovereign who's endured our endless rebellion and sought us out at the cost of his son's death, climaxes our redemption by praising us. He's a wise father who knows how to encourage even the feeblest efforts of his children. 
What this way of concluding the paragraph shows us is that in this case, at least, God judges less sternly than the self-appointed judges in the church. Paul here presupposes that the leaders in question are not to be disciplined, shut out, or ignored. They are bona fide Christian leaders, and on the last day, God himself will praise them. So in our passage for today, we're told to consider ministers for just what they are, servants, stewards, and know that the judgment and approval of man means very little, and that the judgment of Christ is all that will matter in the end. All things are ours in Christ Jesus, and if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we go to his presence. He guides us in the present and has future works prepared in advance for us. But most of all, we belong to Christ, and Christ is God's, his beloved son. Amen. Let's close with this song. Joe, would you lead us?